Heavenly Father, uh, we acknowledge that in many ways uh, we fail to be thankful, truly thankful to you, and therefore we pray that as we reflect on this Old Testament uh, book and think about its links through to us as New Testament people, you would indeed uh, speak to our hearts and encourage us uh, to be more thankful to you in a heartfelt way. Amen. On the 11th of November at 11 a.m. every year, we commemorate Remembrance Day. Uh, we take, of course, time out of our busy schedules to stand silent and to reflect on the sacrifice of those who gave their lives in war to preserve our freedom. Uh, the famous cautionary phrase, lest we forget, summarizes the intent of that occasion. Because by nature, we tend to forget. It's easy to get caught up in the bustle of everyday life. And as time passes, our memory fades and our gratitude wanes. Uh, the danger of forgetting is also alive and well in relation to God. Uh, back in the Old Testament, God warned his people, as we've seen in the kids' talk, at Deuteronomy 6, verse 12. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. You see, by nature, we are all prone to forget about God. Uh, not just because we're human and fallible, but because we are human and sinful. And the problem is not just with our memory, but with our hearts. And we so easily forget God and all that he's done for us. Our gratitude easily becomes shallow and short-lived. Uh, when you look at your own heart, how thankful to the Lord do you find that you are? Well, to help his Old Testament people to remember, uh, God commanded them to observe a whole range of feasts. Uh, these feasts are the subject of Leviticus chapters 23 to 25. Look at 23 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Uh, the repeated refrain throughout these three chapters is this. Uh, chapter 23, verse 14 is one example. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. You see, these repeated festivals, uh, they were to be a lasting ordinance, like a ritual which would remind the people every year of what they needed to remember, in particular, of all that God had done for them. But maybe you're asking, well, surely what's the relevance to us? That is part of the Old Testament law. As Christians, we know that we are no longer bound by the Old Testament law. Uh, look at Romans six, verse, uh, 7, verse 6. We've seen this in our series in Romans. We have been released from the law. Uh, when some of the Christians in first century Galatia started observing these feasts again, Paul despaired of them. He wrote this in Galatians 4. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow... I wasted my efforts on you. So, uh, what is the point in us spending any time on these Old Testament festivals? 
uh, these ordinances this morning. Uh, we're not Jews, we're Christians. Uh, a New Testament believer's calendar, electronic or paper, doesn't have these festivals marked on it. Well, they're worth looking at because although we are no longer under this law, through them we learn about Christ in whom they find their fulfillment. Uh, these festivals and these ordinances point to Christ. And we also, through looking at them together, we also learn principles about remembering the Lord. For that need is still alive and well for people of every generation. Uh, just to give you a quick overview of these three chapters, uh, chapter 23 is about the weekly Sabbath and five annual festivals. Uh, chapter 24 uh, details oil and bread offerings and a case indeed of blasphemy. And then chapter 25 returns to the feasts, uh, explaining particularly the Sabbath year and the year of the Jubilee. So what we're going to do is this. Uh, we're going to firstly stay in chapter 23. We'll look at three of the five feasts in chapter 23, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Uh, we're going to leave out the Feast of Trumpets because we don't really know much about it. And we're going to leave out the Day of Atonement because we've already dealt with that previously in this series. So we'll look at three of the five. And then in our remaining time, we'll fast forward to chapter 25 and we'll look at the Sabbath and the year of the Jubilee. That's where we're going. Is everyone's seatbelts fastened? Let's go. Okay. So let's start with the, uh, the annual feasts detailed in chapter 23. And the first of those is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as the Passover. Uh, Leviticus 23, verse 5. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. Uh, the information in this chapter is pretty sparse about some of these feasts, and so what we need to do is to go to other areas of the Old Testament to fill out the details about, uh, about them. So on the 14th day of the first month, uh, God's people were called to celebrate the Passover. And central to this feast, of course, was the sacrifice and the eating of a lamb. It looked back to and remembered uh, God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. Of course, remember, the angel of judgment went through the land, and when it saw the blood of the lamb on the doorway of the people of Israel, it passed over them. It didn't take the life of the firstborn in those houses. So that was happened on the 14th day. On the 15th day began the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This, of course, commemorated the hasty exit of God's people from Egypt in the night. Now, if you've ever made bread, uh, you'll know that you have to hang around for the bread to rise if it has yeast in it, or leaven, as it's called. But God's people didn't have any time to lose. Uh, God told them they would have to leave urgently in the middle of the night. And so he said, make bread without yeast, without leaven. Uh, this feast also included the offering of the first fruits of the barley harvest. Uh, verses 9 to 14 explain that. So, uh, when you read the gospel accounts, 
uh, you notice something very striking. When we come to the New Testament era, we notice this. Uh, the day that which Jesus was crucified was the day of the Passover. Is that just a coincidence? Uh, of course it isn't. God planned the timing so we would not miss the connection. The Old Testament feast was fulfilled in Jesus and his death. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Through Christ's blood, uh, we have been delivered from slavery. Uh, not a slavery in Egypt, of course, but slavery to sin and slavery to death. Uh, we have experienced the true exodus when we trust in Christ. And so if the Israelites were to remember their rescue from Egypt, how much more should we as New Testament believers remember our exodus? But how? Because we don't, of course, remember the Passover anymore. Uh, the nights before Jesus was crucified, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. And at that meal, he instituted the Lord's Supper. When we share bread and juice together, we remember the death of the Lamb of God. And we look back on and reflect on our exodus from slavery to sin and to death. So you see, the Lord's Supper is very important. The purpose it serves is vital for Christian health. We neglect it at our peril. Our monthly communion services remind us not to forget all that the Lord has done for us in sending his Son. Now, the day after Jesus was crucified was the Sabbath, at the first day of the seven days of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. At the next day after the Sabbath, the Sunday on which Jesus was raised to life, would have been the day on which, in chapters 23 of Leviticus, verse 10, uh, we see would have happened. Uh, the offering of the sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest. Is this another coincidence? Uh, it isn't. Uh, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of the crop were a promise and a guarantee of the full harvest which would in due course come. And so the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of the crop which will come in due course. And what is the crop? We are. We are, if we're trusting in Christ. God's people, one day, will be raised to life when he returns. And Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of that. It is the first fruits. And so how can we make sure we don't forget this wonderful future perspective? Well, again, the Lord's Supper anticipates our end-time feast with the Lord. And in it, we remember not just his death, but also his resurrection and his return. And so, the Lord's Supper reminds us of what is yet to come, the raising of our bodies. So 
So every time uh, we hear of a death in our community, it is a reminder to our mortality and a reminder also that one day we will be raised back to life because Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits which guarantees our own. So that's the first one, the first feast or the feast of the unleavened bread. Uh, secondly, at the feast of weeks, which is also referred to as a harvest festival. Uh, in chapter 23, it was detailed in verses 15 to 22. Uh, this was the only one of these three feasts which didn't commemorate something in Israel's history. Uh, it took place 50 days after the first barley sheaf was waved before the Lord as a, an, in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the Feast of Weast celebrated the grain harvest. Uh, verse 16 says, There was an offering of new grain. Other passages highlight the role of the first fruits again, uh, going back to Exodus 23, verse 16. Celebrate the Feast of Harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your fields. So there it was, uh, the Feast of Weeks, a celebration of the harvest. And it was also to be a time when people cared for the poor. Look at Leviticus 23, verse 22. Uh, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So, uh, what does this feast point to? Uh, the principle at the heart of what this is all about is something that we, we need to be reminded of today. Because you see, all of our food is ultimately a gift from, from God. Uh, we are completely dependent on him as our sustainer, and therefore we should thank him for the harvest. Now then, uh, it's a perspective which it is easy to lose sight of. Uh, it's easy to forget, forget, of course, where our food comes from when we don't need to work the ground ourselves. We merely pick it up off the shelves. Uh, we have little contact, of course, with agriculture in our urban setting. Uh, we live so far down the food chain that people rarely think that the packaged sliced bread in their shopping trolley was actually grain in the field somewhere not long ago. But the reality is, all food is a gift from God, not just from Mr. Coles. So how can we get better at remembering that the Lord is the giver of all these good gifts? Uh, it's sad, really, that um, these days, often, uh, we no longer have what's called in the church calendar a harvest service. Uh, do you remember some of you maybe growing up having harvest festivals? Remember the song you'd sing? Come, we thankful people come. Uh, we plough the fields and scatter. Bringing in the sheaves. Shall we have a quick? No, not now. But yeah, all these wonderful things. Uh, uh, we plough the fields and scatter all good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. Then thank the Lord, oh, thank the Lord for all his love. That slipped off our calendar. Uh, it's a shame, is it not? Because it is a great way of being reminded of all the Lord has given us. 
And of course, if you've been to uh, one of those harvest services, often what you do is you bring foodstuffs for poor people. Uh, tin goods, just like they did in the Old Testament. Uh, the gleanings in the field, caring for the poor. Uh, maybe we should consider putting a harvest festival back on our church calendar because it is a great way of being reminded of all the Lord has done for us. Of course, the other way is whenever we have food, what should we do before we eat? Pray. Thank you, God, for this food. I mean, of course, the danger is it just becomes a ritual which we just roll off our tongues without really thinking about it. But every time we have a meal, it is worth reflecting and saying in a heartfelt way, thank you, God, for this food. It's a great way of acknowledging all the goodness he's given us. Uh, there's another interesting link from this Old Testament festival, uh, which maybe is unexpected. Because in God's providence, we find in the New Testament uh, another supposed coincidence of dates, which is far from accidental. Uh, Acts 2 begins with these words. When the day of Pentecost came. Now, if you are a Greek scholar... Uh, you know that the term Pentecost means 50th. It's the Greek name for this Feast of Weeks which took place 50 days after the presenting of the first barley sheaf. It was the day that God chose, of course, the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his people. And what is the connection between this harvest feast in the Old Testament and the pouring out of the Spirit? Uh, in the prophet uh, Joel, chapter 2, verse 23, God assures his people that as he has poured out on them abundant harvest rains, one day, he says, I will pour out my spirit. God's outpouring of the rains that produce the harvest foreshadowed the outpouring of his spirit. Romans eight twenty-three refers to the first fruits of the Spirit. The first is like the, the Spirit is like the first fruits, a foretaste of the future blessings to come. And so we have many things to thank God for, not least the Spirit's work in our hearts. Without the Spirit, we wouldn't even be sitting here. We'd have had no conviction of sin. We wouldn't have been brought to faith. There'd be no ongoing work in our hearts to change us and transform us. The Spirit would not be able to help us in our daily walk. And so this feast remembers, uh, re reminds us to thank God for the gift, not just of food on the table, but the Spirit in our hearts. The third feast, uh, the Feast of Booths. Uh, now, in terms of the actual annual calendar, we move from spring to autumn, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, um, and that's detailed uh, in Leviticus 23, verses 33 to 43. At uh, the seventh month in which it happened was a busy time in the festival calendar. Uh, on the first of the month, you had the Feast of Trumpets, then the Day of Atonement on the tenth of the month, and finally the Feast of Booths began on the fifteenth of the month, and it lasted for seven days. So you see, of course, it was a very busy month. Uh, you wouldn't get much done in that month. Now then, uh, this was the biggest and it was the most lavish of the festivals. 
if you go back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, uh, it records there in chapter 29 uh, what sacrifices were offered in this feast every year. Let me tell you, uh, 71 bulls, 15 rams, 105, uh, sorry, 15 rams, 105 lambs, and 8 goats. An incredibly lavish festival. And this autumn feast marked the end of the agricultural year. Uh, Leviticus 23 verse 39 says this, after you, after you have gathered the crops of the land. It marked the end of the agricultural year. So it's the harvest Thanksgiving theme again, but there was also something distinctive about this feast. Uh, chapter 23 verse 42, live in booths, in other words, tents, for seven days. So, God's Old Testament people spent a whole week living in shelters they made out of tree branches. Uh, they did this, of course, when they were now in houses, they're living in the promised land, but every time this festival came around for seven days, they would leave their houses and they would go and make and erect temporary shelters which they would then live in. What on earth was the point? Well, uh, according to verse 43, it was so they would remember the time God preserved his people in the desert when they lived in tents. And secondly, once they were living in the land, in houses, it was a way of making them appreciate how much God had given them. A time for looking back over the year and the history of God's dealings with his people. So, what does this mean for us? Well, uh, really, uh, if we're honest, we can say, uh, as a human race, and particularly as Western people, uh, we have never had it so good. In material terms, if we look back across the world and down through the centuries, people have never enjoyed such material prosperity as we do. Uh, also, in spiritual terms, we live in an era with incredible spiritual privileges. We live, of course, after Jesus' life on earth. We live now in the age of the Spirit. And we have a complete Bible. And we have it in our own language and on our shelf. And we live in a land where we are free of persecution as Christians. And yet, sadly, it's probably true that never have people been so prone to overlooking these many blessings and taking them for granted. I'm sure that living in a shelter outside for a week each year would do us a world of good. And I'm not talking about glamping. It would do us a world of good because by nature we tend to forget and we tend to take things for granted and we don't truly thank God from our hearts. When I pray with my kids in the evening, uh, often we run through the format uh, of TSP, which is a very helpful little acronym which helps them remember uh, the main components of prayer. TSP, uh, so let's see how good you are on your TSP. T is? Thanksgiving. S is? Sorry. P is? Please, that's right. TSP. But, I mean, how often in our own prayers, if we think about them, do we skip over that structure? Maybe we go straight to P, please. Uh, maybe we have the odd T, but it's pretty, 
pretty quickly skirted over. The T for Thanksgiving. Uh, it is so important that we take time to reflect and to thank God in our prayers. And you know, when we do that, it enriches our own spiritual walk. Because as we take time to reflect on all that God has given us, and we actually maybe intentionally list it and articulate it and vocalize it, we start to go, my heart is filled with thankfulness. We just see and we realize, my goodness, I have so much. God has blessed me in so many different ways. And our hearts are warmed. It's such a vital component to a healthy Christian walk, and yet we so often deprive ourselves of it, thanking God in all his goodness. Uh, do you remember that? Uh, this is now the going back again. Uh, do you remember that song that we used to sing in previous years? Count your blessings. Count them one by one. Count your blessings. Count them one by one. Count your blessings. Count them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. There you go. As we count them, it does surprise us what the Lord has done. Because by nature we tend to forget. And so it's good to articulate that. So, um, finally, the Sabbath festivals. Uh, let's not, we won't take long on these, but let's look at them briefly before we end our time. Uh, Leviticus, Leviticus 23, verse 3. Uh, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. So, at the heart of the Sabbath festival is, of course, the number seven. Every seventh day was a day of rest from work. Uh, but in addition, chapter 25 tells us that every seventh year was a Sabbath year in which the land was to have a rest. It was to lie fallow. Uh, no sowing, no reaping. And after every seventh cycle of seven years, if this isn't too complicated, there was the year of the Jubilee, uh, the 50th year. So, uh, what relevance does this have for us today? Uh, we're not, no longer under Sabbath law anymore. But what does it teach us? Well, firstly, let's think about the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year. Uh, the purpose of resting from work each week was twofold. Firstly, it was to remember the Creator. It was to follow His pattern in creating the world. Six days He worked and created, the seventh day He rested. But it was also to remember not just creation, but redemption. As slaves, of course, in Egypt, they had to work every day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Unceasing work, no rest. And yet they had been delivered from that slavery. And now they had the luxury of taking a day to rest and reflect on their delivery from slavery. So we are no longer under the Sabbath law, but the principle of regular time to rest and reflect on not just creation, but redemption, still stands. Time off work gives us space to remember God, to enjoy God, 
to savor him and to be refreshed in our spirits. It helps us to remember that there is more to life than work. And that indeed that it is God who keeps the world turning, not us. So, are we taking intentional time to rest each week and to benefit from the equivalent of the Sabbath? What is it that stops us or help makes it difficult for us to take time out from resting? Is it not the fear that unless we, if we don't do that, uh, or if we do that, if we take rest, uh, things that need to be done won't get done? Well, uh, stopping is in a sense an expression of trust in God. He has given us all the time we need to do the things we need to do. And so, to stop is in a sense an act of trusting God in our busy schedules. It's interesting, of course, that the, the year of the Jubilee was when, the seventh year when, the Israelites had to do no harvesting at all, no work for a whole year. If you're living in an agricultural setting, that is a very big risk to take. Are you going to have enough food to live on? And yet God said that he would give them enough harvest in the prior years to carry them through the year of the Sabbath. And so you see, to rest on that year was an act of trust in God. Are we resting? It is vitally important and it is an act of trust. And finally, uh, the, jubilee, it, the jubilee year itself. Uh, this, of course, is outlined in the remainder of chapter 25. Every 50th year, uh, the land was returned to the original owner. Every 50th year, all debts were cancelled, were nullified. It was the year of the Jubilee. Uh, what happened in those days was that if you fell into debt, uh, ultimately you could sell your land and yourself uh, into slavery uh, to pay off the debt. But the whole idea was that come the 50th year, the land, if it had been sold to somebody else, would be returned to its original owner. And if you'd sold yourself into slavery to pay off a debt, on the 50th year, you would be released from that servitude. It was a wonderful provision of God to enable his people not to become enslaved, to live under the burden of debt indefinitely, be able to return to have their own land and to support themselves. It was an incredibly insightful mechanism for resetting the clock and working against greed and oppression. Uh, Leviticus 25 verse 23 says this, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, they lived in the land they were each given sections of the land to live in. But at the end of the day, even though they held the title deed, they didn't really own the land. It was God's. God had entrusted it to them as stewards. And such is true for us today. Everything we have, our life, our house, our wealth, our health, our gifts, we tend to think they're ours, that we have title to them. But actually... They're all God's, and he's given them as a gift. And therefore, we're not owners. We are 
stewards. Do you view everything you have as something on loan to you? Do you view everything you have, therefore, as something which you are called to be a steward of? And the question which follows is, are we being faithful stewards with which God has entrusted us? Our life, our wealth, our skills, our time, our abilities, everything. I recall um, a missionary recounting to me how when he was overseas, um, he was trying to buy, he and his wife were trying to buy a house uh, so they could be based there and have a settled life. And, um, but they were trying to raise the money. It was a lot of money. And uh, somebody from overseas, a generous donor, gave them a huge amount of money, equivalent to a year's wages. And uh, this missionary was bawled over. And he said to them, that's incredibly generous. And the response was this. But it's not my money anyway. It's not my money. I'm just a steward of it. That person had that truth in their heart. And it freed them to be incredibly generous and to be joyful in the Christian life. Just to know that, hey, God has given me this. I can share it. I can be generous with it. And I can be using it for God's purposes. How wonderful. So, the year of the Jubilee. Uh, it was an amazing means by which uh, people were relieved from their oppression. But there's an incredible future fulfillment of this. Because uh, in Isaiah chapter 61, uh, the prophet looks forward to someone who would one day proclaim the year, if you like, the eternal jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. It would be the ultimate jubilee year in which captivity would be ended forever. Spiritual captivity. And of course, when we trace the trajectory of this prophecy through to the New Testament, we see the link in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is there in the synagogue and he reads from this passage in Isaiah and then he rolls up the scroll and he says these words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the one who has come to bring the ultimate year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Jubilee, when all debts are canceled, when all captivity is finally ended. Spiritual captivity to sin and death. Spiritual debts which we can never pay to God our Creator. The Old Testament Israelites had to wait 50 years to get their freedom. And yet this freedom is available to everybody. Immediately they call on the name of the Lord. How wonderful. We live now in the year of the Lord's favor. But it will not be there forever. The clock is ticking, and as in any World Cup match, dare I mention it, once the final whistle is blown, there is no changing the result thereafter. Now is the time for people to accept the freedom that Christ offers. So, in conclusion, if we would call ourselves God's people, if we're trusting in Christ, are we remembering the Lord? The challenge of Leviticus 23-25 is this. Take care lest we forget. The Lord has shown amazing goodness to us as our creator and as our redeemer. And he calls us for our own benefit to remember him, to praise him, to thank him, 
and not forget all his benefits. Let's heed the encouragement of the psalmist. Psalm 103, verse 2. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So whatever we do in this week ahead and in the month ahead, let's not forget the Lord. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your goodness to us. We have so much to be thankful for, often uh, to our own uh, disbenefit uh, and our own loss. We skip so quickly over reflecting on all the things you have given us, uh, and we fail to thank you and to have our hearts warmed as a result. Please, we pray, uh, help us not to forget. Help us to be truly grateful, grateful and to be good stewards of all that you have entrusted to us, we pray. Amen.